soon suggest that all life did ultimately have its beginnings in the primordial slime. Few believed any longer in life regularly emerging from the inanimate. Egypt had been invaded by Napoleon, and had then fallen, as he had, under the growing British sphere of influence. Its ancient artifacts were fast becoming familiar exotics in the museums of Europe, By the end of the century, Sigmund Freud would plumb the middle-class European mind from a consulting room bursting with Egyptiana, including a mummy's mask that he liked to stroke. The Egyptian floodplains had been given over to the industrial-scale production of cotton, and fledgling tourism was starting to be seen in Cairo and on the river. Much of the continent from which the Nile flowed, however, was still completely unexplored and the undiscovered source of the great river remained a tantalizing symbol of the stubborn resistance of parts of the world to the increasingly bullish European powers. Sir Roderick Murchison, the president of the Royal Geographical Society, blended the languages of intellectual and financial speculation when he declared, in his presidential address of 1852, that there was no exploration in Africa to which greater value would be attached than establishing the source of the Nile, and that the men who achieved it would be justly considered among the greatest benefactors of this age of geographical science. Though Vasco da Gama had pioneered the sea route to India around the Cape of Good Hope as early as the 1490s, European travel into the interior had not greatly progressed by 1800, and settlement was very thin and almost entirely restricted to the coast. Africa had, for a long time, been an extremely unattractive prospect to the white traveller. Its landscape, its illnesses, and the extremes of its climate were death both to the unwitting European traveller and to the pack animals on which he was wholly reliant. And even if the Central African environment had not proven quite so resistant, the interior of the continent offered few obvious prizes to adventurers, apparently having none of the great mercantile empires of the East Indies, nor the bottomless mines and rolling grasslands of the Americas. That Africa became suddenly and immensely attractive to Europeans and Americans in the mid-nineteenth century was the result of a number of factors which were closely related. The Industrial Revolution had both created new markets and reaped great wealth from them. Industrial philanthropy paid in large measure for the scientific and evangelical expeditions that made their way into Africa, and these expeditions saw the lack of civilization in the continent as an opportunity rather than a deterrent. Africa would provide both souls for religious instruction and challenges to be overcome by the unstoppable leviathan of Western knowledge. In the event, and not unpredictably, the altruism of these philanthropists was lucrative beyond imagining. Despite the fact that these ventures were thought of by contemporaries as foolishly benign, often being criticized for throwing good money after bad, they nevertheless produced raw materials which made new fortunes. Rubber, harvested from trees in central African forests, was transformed by the discovery of vulcanization into an indispensable commodity. Eastern Africa was found to be perfect for cultivating sisal, for rope fibre, and pyrethrum 
for industrial pesticides. And if at the beginning of the century European governments were largely indifferent, even hostile, to the idea of colonies in Africa, by the end they were convinced of the vital strategic importance of not letting anyone else get there first. For Britain, the Nile would form the backbone of a British Africa which stretched from Egypt through Sudan to East Africa and Nyasaland, then down through Rhodesia to the Cape. The expedition which finally succeeded in locating the source of the Nile left the coast of modern-day Tanzania in 1857 and was led by Captain Richard Francis Burton. Burton was not yet forty, but he was already the Victorian traveller par excellence. Most notably, he had undertaken the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj, with a shaven head and in disguise, and his account of the feat.